everyone, welcome to Poetry Says, episode 64. My name is Alice and this is going to be my last episode for the year and this episode is a bit of a treat for me. So I've gone a little bit outside the rules of Poetry Says and just straight up interviewed a poet whose work I absolutely love. I managed to meet up with Stuart Cook while he was down here in Melbourne and speak with him in person about his book, Opera. And Opera's only been out for a short while now, but it's one of those sort of totemic, talismanic books for me. It's one of those books that I've read and now everything looks completely different. So the opportunity to speak with Stu was just so exciting. And so what you're going to hear in this interview is a very um, intelligent, very thoughtful poet being interviewed by someone who's basically just a huge fan. But I hope one of the things that we managed to do in this chat is offer some really interesting ways to think about some of the themes that come up a lot when I do interviews for this podcast. I think often as poets, we can tend to think in terms of polarities or opposition. So for example, a political poem versus an apolitical poem or a lyric poem versus an experimental quote unquote or non-linear poem or conservative versus avant-garde, Australian versus US, all these kinds of things. And in listening back to what Stu says about all this, I feel like there's a, a bit more of a complicated way to look at this, a bit more of a, there are ways to look at these ideas that allow a bit more space. You don't necessarily have to pick a side. At the start of the chat, I'm talking quite a bit about a fantastic review of opera, which was written by Rachel Mead in Cordite. And I'll link to that in my show notes. And we also refer to a poem called An Overcast Day in Another Part of the World, which Stu's recorded for Mianjin. And that won the Dorothy Porter Poetry Prize. And it's a poem that's incredibly close to my heart. So I'll link to that one as well. And there are also a few other poets that that pop up occasionally. We talk a bit about Bonnie Cassidy's book, Final Theory. And I have an interview about that um, that I put together for Verity La that you can listen to if you like. And Michael Farrell also comes up. And if you're interested in knowing more about him, I chatted to Corey Wakeling about him uh, about this time last year, I think. So I'll link to that as well. So there's, there's plenty of places to go, even in an Australian context from this conversation, not to mention Latin American poetry, which I know very little about, but Stu's very familiar with. And it was, it was great to hear about that as well. So yeah, it was just such a pleasure to talk to a poet whose work I admire so much. And I also just learned so much from, from listening to this. I had that feeling that I always have when I'm editing these things that, you know, I would make this podcast even if no one was listening. But I know that you are listening. I know that you're out there and it's very, very exciting. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting me through another year of Making Poetry Says. I'm definitely going to be back next year. I've already got interviewees lined up. Don't even worry. And yeah, just thank you so much for listening.
so this is definitely my version of a celebrity interview. <laughs> I'm so because of the excited to talk to you. Oh, oh yes, right. also because, because of the hotel, right? <laughs> the the very luxurious hotel room. Yeah. yeah. No, but I'm going to be like complete uh, nerd fangirl. Great. Like, wow. I love your book. Okay. I adore your book. Thank you. And usually, you know, my my theme, my rule with the podcast, which exists mainly in my own head, is I like to invite people on to talk about work that they love because I feel as if in Australian poetry we don't have that much space to do that kind of celebratory stuff. Yeah. We can kind of mm. get published and that's great for us or we can um, review people and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but just yep. to like, just go, this person's great. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree actually. There. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 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 But I'm breaking my own rule today um, because I haven't asked you to talk about someone that you love. I'm just talking about you because oh, right. I think you look great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, and I really just have questions about... Well, I think I want to start by asking about um, uh, places, which is probably... might feel like a logical place to start with this book. So you're now living on the Gold Coast. Yep. Um, but you were born in Sydney. Yep. And spent time in Hobart. Yep. Um, I'm wondering what it's like, even just in those in Australian contexts, like what it was like for you as a poet moving through those spaces. Like, were there things that you picked up? Were there different um, experiences that shaped you as a writer? in those places yes uh, definitely um, I suppose I don't have a strong sense of myself as belonging to like a particular location I mean I suppose I still think of Sydney as being my home city I still suppose I feel most at home in Sydney but even Sydney is a you know a very large area um, and uh, my sense of belongings distributed across that area. Um, but uh, in terms of, yeah, the relationships between these different places, um, uh, I, I think, I think my, my kind of, um, my, my inclinations lead me to kind of uh, feel a much sort of closer sense of connection to perhaps kind of the country between Sydney and the Gold Coast that's I mean as much to do with perhaps feelings of nostalgia from childhood holidays in that part of the world but also you know my probably the first poet I read seriously was was Robert Gray and you know he writes so much about the north coast of New South Wales so in, in poetic terms it's very resonant for me whereas Hobart and Tasmania um it's it, like I don't feel like there, there is a sort of very strong sense of identity amongst Tasmanian poets and I don't feel part of the, them because for me Tasmania is a very particularly Hobart has a very dark set of associations just to, to do with childhood experiences and things I, I don't sort of yeah I don't kind of think of it as a, a place of you know romantic beauty and European cobblestone streets and so on like mm -hmm. as, as people tend to do I mean I of course it's you know, objectively, I can say it's an extremely beautiful place, and you know, and I enjoy going there. But it's never a place uh, that I would go to and and feel any sense of kind of um, any sort of resolved sense of of 
of uh, homeliness like I might in Sydney or somewhere on the north coast yeah I, I really relate to, to all that I mean I am as we were saying before I started recording I was born in Canberra I lived there till I was 27 I don't think that I could legitimately call myself a Canberra poet though um, I would feel like if I said that I would be kind of claiming I've been trying to figure out whether there's a Canberra school quote unquote and I think if I were to say, oh, yeah, I'm a Canberra poet, that would be really disingenuous. Right, right. But so much of that's got to do with the fact that when I was there, I was just so unhappy about the fact that I was uh, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so to then go back and be like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm a Canberra person and I'm all about it, that would feel really wrong. But yeah. similarly, I don't at all feel like a Melbourne poet or even really an Australian poet. I, I wonder yeah. if that's like also a, a kind of, yeah, maybe there is a kind of Canberra school of poets who who are very dissatisfied with being in Canberra or a kind of, you know, as opposed to the kind of, I don't know, like the Jeff Page school or something that maybe own Canberra as a kind of location or an emblem mm. for a sort of, you know, style of writing. Yeah. Um, and, and conversely as well, I wonder if in Melbourne it's actually very common for maybe the majority of poets in Melbourne not to think of themselves as Melbourne poets because they have come here from elsewhere, Yeah. you know, to, to kind of... You know, um, enjoy the 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 activity of the city and so on. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, don't know. yeah I, I feel that when I read uh, Jeff's work or um, someone like maybe John Fulcher, right? Um, uh, just a real like celebration of the of Canberra and its its landscape and its beauty. Right, right. And I totally get it. And also, I, I just don't. I just can't yep. go there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in my own work at all. Yeah, um, yeah. I think in the the two years I lived there, I think maybe I, I think I wrote maybe two or three poems in total, like about Canberra. Like mm. it was like, I mean, I yeah, I, I had that was you know it was very sort of prolific during that period, but I just could not in any way sort of engage with. The, the place as a place or as, as mm. something you know um, it was yeah it was like a yeah it was it, I only ever felt like I was there transiently or something mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah yeah which um. is definitely like a lot of people's experience sure um, yeah. and I'm guessing judging by the sort of key at the back of, of opera here mm. um, Canberra poems don't appear in this book um, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and I started writing that book sort of really shortly after I left Canberra. Right. Um, yeah, but I, a lot of the kind of early thinking that underpins that book was done, yeah, during my PhD in Canberra, but, but right. I don't know if any of it was written. I don't think any of it was written there. Yeah. Um, in my earlier book, um, Edge Music, there's like there's one poem about... that that was written about Brindabella, so just outside of Canberra, mm -hmm. and another poem about Durris, like, you know, like a south coast town, a short drive from Canberra. Durris. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and they were written while I was living in Canberra, but I don't yeah. think there was anything actually about, about yeah. the city itself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mentioned the key at the end of the book. This was this is one of the main things I think is fantastic about it. So you have a list of places and then the corresponding um, poems from the collection that are, I guess have a relationship to that place. Yep. Um, and 
So to prepare to talk to you, I read a review of opera by Rachel Mead in Cordite. Oh, okay, yep. Have you yep. read that one? Or? Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. It, it was really helpful. It really helped me Great. give some language to what I wanted to mm-hmm. say. Um, so thanks, Rachel. And <laughs> yeah, she, thanks, said, Rachel. Um, uh, she said that the, the book is kind of approaching this idea of writing about place as an act of translation. And I was like, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And that's why I think it speaks to me so much because mm. for myself as a writer I feel like place is possibly the most important thing um, mm. but I don't really I mean I guess that is pretty a pretty strong theme in Australian poetry but it's possibly superseded by depending on the poet maybe love or mm. politics mm. or self mm. Uh, mm. or even if we can separate out like the, the like nature yeah know? yeah um yeah yeah i can't really think of any other poets who've done this kind of thing but it's not i feel like saying oh this is a collection about um places is just really reductive like it's more than that would you agree or yeah yeah i mean i i i, I kind of wince a little bit when you know i, well, I would wince a little bit if somewhere to someone were to say oh you know like Stuart's a poet of place yeah, because that's what I for me it suggests like that term suggests I think something you were referring to which is a, a kind of tradition a kind of romantic post-romantic tradition <clears throat> which, you know which can be very interesting which is pir- primarily concerned with a kind of um, evoking a, a sense of intimacy between you know the poet and his or her location that results in a kind of moment of transcendence where mm. it's like that location has provided that poet with a kind of sense of the divine or a sense of yeah. something greater than where he or she is. Yeah, see also um, Gary Oliver. Totally, yeah. Um, I mean, even, you know, bad Gary Snyder, um, you know, there's <laughs> and there's Gary a lot of Snyder. imitators of Gary Snyder, you yeah, know, right. that like Robert Haas, you know, and in Australia, I mean... I think there are really, I mean, really interesting and, and again, some of my key influences in this sense. Um, I mean, yeah, poets like uh, Les Murray, certainly, but also people like Peter Minter as well, who I, you know, I, I kind of really adore. Um, there's a, like, if, if Australian poetry has anything to offer in this sense, for me, it's it's a kind of uh, a, a primacy of of place like as country like the way we talk about country in an australian context as Mm. being like a like a person like Mm. a like a like a you know a a kind of operative agency in a way um it's not just a kind of setting for the poet's concerns but it has agency it acts upon the the person or the people within it Mm. um and of course you know that was you know and it is and continues to be informed by my understanding of um, Aboriginal conceptions of country, um, countries being more than terrain, but you know, involving ancestors, spirits, more than human things, people, plants, uh, other animals, and so on, um, and a kind of awareness that you know, as I started to read more about Indigenous literatures more broadly, that you know, kind of when you step outside of the Western tradition. Um, this notion that poetry or the artistic moment comes from the mind of the, you know, the genius poet is, is really, really kind of 
anachronous and really kind of actually quite specific to the Western tradition. And mm. and really, you know, if you go all over the Americas or all over Australia and pay attention to the way people talk about poetry, for example, it's something that comes, you know, from the earth. Or if not spoken of in those explicit terms, it's something that comes from a set of relations with other things. Mm. You know, whether it's a relationship between you and your ancestral spirit that you meet in a dream or you and a particular location that that uh where, where perhaps some totemic beings reside and then they they inform you of a certain kind of you know poetic line or or, or inclination these these were sorts of things that i um was really thinking a lot about when i wrote the book um and i wanted to kind of and and i and i develop you know very kind of strict process I wouldn't say strict but it, it, it became very clear to me that certainly for all the poems in opera like I couldn't I don't think any on any occasion a poem um, was written or conceived of inside like I just had to be outside all the time ah, when I was writing this stuff and it became clear to me before I kind of made it into a sort of formal procedure that what I was actually doing in writing the early poems was, I, I, it wasn't just me writing, like I was literally sitting there and looking around at what was going on around me. And I was very interested in kind of um, avant-garde procedures and things. Michael Farrell's also, you know, been important for me. And, and, and through him, you know, the, the avant-garde tradition. And I was very interested in these um kind of non-linear dissociative um, language practices and as and as I was sitting in these places I realized that the kind of signs that they were giving me whether it was through you know the movements of animals or you know the the, the, the arrival of wind or rain or whatever they were kinds of interruptions that, that kind of occurred uh, in in the kind of in concert with the composition of whatever it was I was writing, mm -hmm. and if I included those interruptions in the work, along with you know whatever else the place was kind of telling me, you know, in that broad sense, mm. um, what I was actually doing was producing a kind of collaborative piece that didn't have a clear kind of um, coherent structure in that kind of you know aesthetically formal conservative sense. It wasn't about you know, a single person's point of view, you know, developing a clear image that led to a kind of, you know, rationally coherent moment of transcendence at the end of the poem. It, was, it wasn't anything like that. It was a kind of, yeah, a collaborative, a collaborative experience involving many different kinds of forces. Mm, mm. So that literally when I, you know, was in any one of these places, when I sat down or whatever I did, whatever I thought I was going to write was only kind of half the story and the other half came as I was sitting there, you know, sort of being as open as I could to what was going on yeah. around me. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't mean to sort of romanticise that. Of course, I was looking for certain things and, of course, who I am determined in a real sense the sorts of things I was paying attention to and all that sort of stuff, but it was still... Um, something I, I felt I really had to make clear, at least at the end of the book, that um, this, this kind of apparent um, uh, kind of experimentation with language and syntax um, isn't, as, as, as is often the case when people deride 
these experimental traditions and they say, oh, yes, they have no connection to the real world, they're abstract, the language doesn't refer to anything real and so on. I wanted to make the point that these poems referred were, were as pos- in, you know, integrally real as I could possibly make them, and that's the point. The right. abstraction or that, that apparent abstraction or rupture of syntax was because they were real. Like, mm. that's what the real is. It's, yeah. it's not uniform and coherent and nicely polished. It's like, you know, it's kind of semi-chaotic and, and stuff occurs you know, on one side of your field that doesn't have any relationship to the other side and so mm. on. Mm. And, yeah, you can do your best to sort of orient through that, but there's no guarantee that it's all going to just sort of fit together. Um, oh, man, there's so many, so many things I want to say on this. But one, one is that this, what you're saying here about this collaborative process with the landscape it reminds me a bit of a discussion on uh, my other favourite poetry podcast, besides <laughs> my own, um, called Commonplace. Oh. And in that, um, there was a discussion of uh, poetry and motherhood. Um, the interviewee was talking about the process of writing with small children in the house and how mm. she stopped trying to control her writing space and mm. time and just started recording what her kids were saying in wow. her poems. Wow. Yeah, which I thought was kind of a, a radical idea. And mm. um, and what, when she wrote it out, it was quite funny and, and enjoyable. Um, but then also, just going back to the Mary Oliver thing, and I love Mary Oliver, let's just get that on the table. <laughs> but like, it's mm. sort of makes me think the way that you're describing this process you go out into a landscape with an idea but then you allow the landscape to inform the idea if you're not doing that or say say you're Mary Oliver you're going for a walk in the woods I don't know like is there a sense that maybe those poems that she writes are, are reducing things down they're kind of like blocking stuff out so that you can end up with this beautiful or maybe Rob Frost's a better example um, yeah, make make a beautiful point with some beautiful images, but leave out anything that doesn't serve that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that's like legitimate in a thousand ways too. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess, and you know, and, and all these different, I suppose, at different times and different places, it's more or less appropriate to you know have different kinds of aesthetics like but the problem i suppose we could say one of the problems with with work like olivers or frosts let's say you know in an australian context or in a decolonial context or or you know even you know in a colonial context is that like there's this kind of tendency towards simplicity and a tendency towards uh privileging the perspective of this speaker who um you know purports to to be able to give you what is necessary from that scene Mm. and you know if we know anything or if we've learned anything at all from like um a hundred years of aboriginal activism it's that we know next to nothing about what's going on in country in australia unless we have you know gone through the right initiation and so on in the place we're in right so any kind of poetics that kind of privileges the speaker's uh, clarity of vision that privileges the speaker's ability to, you know, uh, kind of reach kind of sort of or acquire life lessons from, from you know, looking at, at certain things in certain places without acknowledging these complex, you know, relationships is just like for me it's kind of morally bankrupt. Um, and 
it's not to say like I'm not saying that every poem needs to be about treaty or every poem needs to be about you know indigenous dispossession and stuff like that I mean that's that's great but clearly not every poem in opera is about that I mean you could argue that probably no poem is but the point is though that you're working in a space where that kind of certainty and that kind of clarity that you know those are not pre-given things like maybe you can acquire those things in certain very privileged circumstances but yeah it's not that is not the reality of Australia like we we can't we can't operate that way and I'd argue as well in it's the same in North America you can't just walk around pretending that you know what goes on inside you is some kind of pure space of 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 um of, of kind of higher reasoning that, yeah you know like so yeah that's kind of it's kind of my sense I mean I, I can I can read uh Mary Oliver and I and I you know and I can yeah like I yeah I can totally enjoy it but if if I find myself um if I was finding myself starting to write that way and there are even poems in opera that kind of tend more towards that sort of structure um I'm also sort of aware that this is not a space I can be in indefinitely mm. this is like this can only be a kind of yeah a temporary thing um yeah 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 absolutely yeah it, um another thing that Rachel Mead said in the review that was really helpful was she was talking about your work and also the work of other Australian poets as creating a new way of speaking about landscape that acknowledges multiple histories and I thought that was that was such a great way to put it because it's just the acknowledgement as a start right like it's just recognizing that there are multiple histories and definitely not saying and I've also resolved all the issues around that and yep. here's my perfect poem yeah yep. um, but at least writing in a space that that knows that that's there seems really deeply important to me as like something that Australian poets probably have to do yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That's like the yeah. most unequivocal thing I've ever said on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> there we have it. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's right. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the, the and, and, and I'm actually excited by the, the aesthetic implications. Like, I, I think, I actually think it's okay to say that what you care most about in, in, in these sorts of scenarios is the poetry because you know if you care most about producing good poetry then then hopefully then you know the kind of the the political work you did to arrive in that kind of aesthetic space is then you know carried on in the poetry whereas if you if you if you care more about the the kind of political point of, mm. of acknowledging multiple histories for example than you do about the kind of um, aesthetic form that might take then the work might be weak and dogmatic and forgettable and all these different things like th that's my position anyway like so like I I'm actually excited by um yeah the potential for work that op that operates with these kinds of understandings like I'm really excited by um Bonnie Cassidy's work or yeah Michael Farrell's more recent work you know this is these these are poems that are existing in this kind of space of uncertainty where of course we need to be able to operate with imagery with sight for example but that sight is constantly being fractured and disrupted disrupt disrupted and 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 kind of um uh, uh, like unsettled like everything everything then that we thought we knew about poetry in other words you know it needs to rely on these clear images and and this kind of 
um, the, the, these powerful balls of emotion and so on is being questioned by these poets mm-hmm. and, and we're, we're kind of being taken to a new, a new kind of terrain. So like I, I, don't, I don't see these, this, this need to, you know, to acknowledge the political reality as a kind of limit, like it, as, as perhaps like a more kind of conservative approach might take it. You know that the resistance might be well. I should just be able to write however, however I want, and to be able to say what I want. Mm. You know, um, that's fine. But you know, if that means you're just going to end up writing the same kind of poetry, that you know, as, as what we've had and 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 as what abounds in the English language, and has abounded for like a hundred years, then uh, you know, I just don't, I just don't see the point of mm. that. Mm. It's as bad, in other words, for poetry as it is for for politics. I feel like there's also the other side of it too where if you are just I think this is kind of what you're saying like if you're just being dogmatic um, if you are only concerned with the political side of it and if you're thinking well if I'm going to write a poem it has to be a poem that is calling out yep. um, the Prime Minister or a mining company or yep. something like that that also seems kind of reductive in a way like yep. probably yep. won't get you all that far yeah. yeah, and it, and it's. I think it's a. Sometimes in these discussions, I mean, I, I totally see the place of, uh, you know, of a kind of for for a kind of, like activist aesthetic, as someone like John Kinsella might might call it. You know, I totally can see that there's a time and place for very dogmatic, very kind of overtly political poetry. I'm not. I'm not kind of, sort of pretending otherwise. But but yeah, I I do think though that. Um, uh, Often, though, in these discussions, there's kind of a slippage between the fact that, you know, yes, we have these political concerns, but they don't just simply, they can't just simply be overlaid onto poetry as if poetry was simply, you know, you know, if as if the the form of discourse was exactly the same in both instances. But like, so you have your political speech over here, and then your poem over here. We can't just simply you know, lift the thematic concerns from one thing to the other and expect them to be equally successful in both in both instances. Like mm. you, that to my mind is a kind of darker kind of politics, which is to do with the kind of disavowal of aesthetics and the and the kind of diminishing of importance of the aesthetic form, which to me is a kind of lack of care and compassion for a you know a vital part of the world, like a vital part of human experience. Um, like if you if, if to you like aesthetics needs to become subservient to to some kind of what you think is a grander ideal then I don't know how that's different to a you know to the seeds of a kind of totalitarianism if you get what I mean yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. like you can't just um, be you can't just say poetry is only important if it's political yeah 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 mm. um and and well or or more that um the political um needs to if, if we're going to the, the political needs to be able to uh, exist through translation so we need to be able to appreciate how aesthetic practice can embody certain kinds of politics but it doesn't have to actually parrot that politics it doesn't actually have to be explicit about the politics mm-hmm. like for it you know for it to work in other very successful ways yeah. Like, yeah. yeah I don't know if it's relevant but I've as you're speaking about this particular point of thinking about um, 
think it's Robert Harper's wife, Brenda Hillman. Right. And a poem that I saw her read, which was about an oil spill, and it was about the the voice of birds trapped in an oil spill. And she read it, and it was kind of um, mostly just bird sounds. So she's kind of standing at the mic making these bird sounds, which eventually kind of became human language. Right. Um, and at the time, I thought that that was a pretty great way to grapple with these concerns. It's kind of like, well, I've I've tried to take myself as the as the poet who's so shocked and saddened by this out of the center, and instead, here are some bird noises. Mm. <laughs> so I'm making it sound mm. so dumb. It was actually really moving. Mm. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I guess it's a long way of saying like there are ways to do it. Yeah. More yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's I mean that's a great example of like where yeah, you, like you produce this quite beautiful and moving work which is clearly yeah based on this kind of very interested ecological politics, you know, about kind of decentering the primacy of this person's emotional experience and yeah, acknowledging other things and so on. Yeah. But that's not neat. you don't need to actually explicit make that explicit in the poem. The poem occupies that structure or it it articulates that structure without kind of actually there being this kind of moment where you're saying, you know, this is how the poem needs to be written. Or, right. I am yeah. writing this way. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that, that kind of brings me to um, the, one of the things I wanted to talk about with opera was the fact that it has, as you read through it, it really strongly gives the feeling of being um, like 40,000 feet up above the earth hmm. and and seeing I mean obviously one of the, the concerns, not obviously, but it feels like one of the concerns of the book is um, the connection that continents used to have uh, you know Gondwana land, yep. that kind of thing yep. and so yeah, there's this feeling that like you're, you're floating above and seeing everything as a whole um and so, yeah, talk about, you know, acknowledging multiple histories where you're also acknowledging the history before any kind of human history was there to, mm. to be mm. written and, and start, you know, corrupting each other. Uh, and that is, like, hugely reflected in the form as well, I feel. Um, because you're just using so much... I mean, yeah, I hesitate to call it formatting, but, like, the design of the poems is reflecting that as well in a lot of cases. Right, right. Yeah. Um, just just playing. Yeah, I, ge I guess I feel kind of quite strongly that... Um, uh, that um, language or, or... Sorry, that the poetry is, is really contingent upon... Um, time and place and and like if, if if you're really going to be open to that contingency then you should be willing or, or open to the fact that the poem might occupy any number of different forms yeah so um and i mean i can i imagine this is a problem for some but like that's why you know in there for example i have like a kind of first person sort of confessional poem like an overcast day a few pages after you know a poem like biophilia you know so there's like this that, that i'm not interested in a kind of formally coherent book like i, I think that's yeah. that's a real problem for me because that would then suggest that i am imposing too much of my own 
sort of preconceptions on these places that I'm writing in. Right. Like I have to be open to the fact that different places will produce different kinds of poems. Yeah, right. Um, and it's it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's a sort of feature of my my first book too, the sort of that formal diversity, but I didn't sort of really, I suppose I haven't kind of, yeah, I didn't theorise it as much before opera, but in opera it was really, it was a really big deal. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I kind of, um, that that also came from a bit of my a bit of sort of youthful frustration with my sort of simplistic understanding of Australian poetry at the time. Like there was either the kind of conservative sort of Les Murray side, or the kind of radical avant garde side, and you know all the problems with the conservative side are you know sort of well known. But I was also frustrated with again this is just a simplistic reductive understanding but I was frustrated with what I perceived amongst you know many of my friends which was just a like a kind of over reliance reliance of of anything that came from the United States like everything all their kind of poetics and so on was coming from the United States and I was starting to spend a lot of time in Chile and pay a lot more attention to Latin American poetics and so I felt like I was between these two poles mm-hmm. and that I, I wasn't happy with either of them. And for me, there's a huge tradition, you could call it Baroque or Neo-Baroque um, Latin American poetry, that, that kind of it sort of operates somewhere between those two poles. It's not kind of at the very edges of, of language, but at the same time it's full of sort of contortions and ruptures and, and, and syntactical play that mean it's not a kind of you know formally conservative poetics either and i and i and i found something in that i think uh well i don't think i know <laughs> like i it, it really sort of took me and that then you know is why i suppose i just i wanted to kind of i, I wanted to not have a certain i, I didn't want any sort of coherence like in, in from poem to poem i wanted to feel like every poem was something completely new um, wow, yeah. this is blowing my mind because I mean that—that's the the thing about this book is that you are comfortable doing, you know, a fully left justified conventional yeah, exactly, yeah. first person poem, and then exactly, yeah. there's a poem. I'm trying to find it here. Um, I mean, there are poems here that just have like just dashes and lines, and uh, you know, just yeah a lot of risks being taken a lot of yeah. fun being had with the with the presentation of it yeah and i read it and i thought this is great someone's brought together a whole bunch of poems that are uh, from all those kind of corners of of their work and just put them all together in a book and um five islands has said we love that <laughs> and and it's gone out into the world but i didn't realize until what you're just saying then that that was a fully like intentional and reflects this kind of thing of i'm going to go out and let yeah the world the landscape tell me yeah. how to write this particular idea yeah it, and, it, and it yeah it's 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 really um important and and it doesn't even have to be so bound up you know with the landscape or, or, or with this sort of idea of place I mean I really actually just think like you you kind of well at least for me for my own practice like a, if I'm really kind of um, open to kind of the experience of what of each poem that I write however it happens wherever it happens then yeah. I, I have to remain kind of formally open like I can't 
Um, I'm not saying this is how it should be for everyone either. It's just I, I just I just find myself um, I, I I'm just really uncomfortable yeah with the idea that I'm kind of constantly pursuing a similar sort of formal angle or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it was it was a really important part of the book. Mm. Yeah. Um, I really want to get you to read something from the book, but before that, I wanted to go back to what you said about taking from the US right um, what in particular was do you think was being borrowed um, well look and you know I say this is someone who reads a lot of American poetry oh, you know too. yeah I'm yeah and yeah I mean terrible. and and you know and like it, you know, I, I, I love a lot of it and you know some of my best friends are American poets you know that sort of thing like <laughs> yeah I mean I don't I, I I guess it was it was more that sort of youthful arrogance that where, where I just perceived because I was writing a lot and thinking a lot about about colonialism and and de or post-colonial poetics and Australia and and indigenous people and so on um, I, I, I my perception was that like a lot of my friends who were also interested in these things were in nevertheless a kind of contradictory fashion sourcing almost the entirety of their kind of reading and 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 theory on poetics from the united states okay. like and particularly you know i'm thinking of you know innovative traditions whether new york school language school um lena Ginny and susan howell like all, whoever whoever it might be ashbury of course um and and at the same time would just kind of they, they were just kind of you know sort of dismissive of of the paucity of australian poetry and it's and it's conservatism and and for me, I just found that like a deeply unsatisfactory kind of position to be in, where you know ostensibly your concern, you have a concern, you know, with the nature of your country in the present, but like all of your kind of aesthetics are coming from somewhere else or something. Right. Yeah, you're taking that and just like yeah. applying it, um, or yeah, it's not as if you can just go go off to the US and be like, hello, here I am. Yeah. Get yeah. Right about like the South. Exactly, um, and and but I I mean I, I don't you know these people I'm talking about they that's not actually what they were doing it's just that no. that was my youthful kind of reductive way of getting frustrated about something I suppose it made me feel you know it gave me the impetus to do something else yeah but um, yeah and 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 I just you know so for me as well like I I was also really unsatisfied with the kind of conservative tradition and I mean by that I I really just mean the kind of the poetry anthologized and awarded by people like Les Murray and Robert Gray and, and Jeff Lehman and all these sorts of people. Um, I, I was also really unsatisfied with that work. And, and um, for me at the time, um, Latin America was like, you know, it sounds cheesy, but it was like a third way, like th this yeah. Baroque tradition I was talking about. Yeah. And, um, but so in the book, like this, you, you mentioned, you know, this sense of Gondwana and so on, um, that was for me, um, I was writing a, a PhD about kind of intersections between indigenous poetics in Chile and Australia. And so that for me, like that sort of understanding of Gondwana and noting the kind of similarities, for example, in species and landforms in southern Chilean Tasmania, for example, stuff like that, that that for me was like a sort of, you know, a, 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 a sort of under, a, a subterranean structure underneath the whole kind of book of poems you know that that like I wasn't just I was imagining a kind of fused space where there were these parallel histories of colonization and dispossession 
and where Spanish is, you know, just as much a kind of colonial tongue as English and, and has this kind of, you know, deeply sort of distance but also very intimate relationship to, to, the, to the landscape. So that's why as well, you know, the poems sometimes cross between those languages and, 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 and so on. So, yeah, there was, a, there was a kind of drive on different levels, like a, a personal one to do with my relationship to, 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 the, to the poems, but also a need to kind of make it part of a bigger mm. set mm. of networks. And do you feel um, satisfied, like happy now about the amount of work that's being published at the moment that is in contrast to that more conservative school do you feel like that we need to do a lot more or um i do like the short answer is yes but like i agree with what you were saying i just feel like we're not doing a very good job of celebrating it okay um yeah. like i'm deeply dissatisfied with i was just talking about this with someone earlier today i'm deeply satisfied with dissatisfied with the work that gets awarded in this country by poetry prizes and and, and it just seems like um continually what we're what we're um celebrating at least on that formal institutional level is just the same old kind of lyric poetry the same old book that that doesn't try to establish a broader kind of context that has no conceptual ambition that's just literally a set of discrete poems um yeah. and uh, that's yeah. what i'm terrified i'm gonna write by the way <laughs> so well, no, that's but, why i'm like clutching this thing being but like, do okay. it <laughs> do it you might you no, know I you'll be do it. you'll this be the thing. you'll be nice and wealthy as a result no but. i won't be wealthy <laughs> either this is the thing you're simply out of trace no um, i mean yeah. de- but there are great ways to do it too i mean like i just yeah so so i i mean i'm definitely like i definitely do feel that I mean, some of my very favourite poets are poets writing in Australia right now. And, and I mean, like, of all poetry of any time, anywhere, I totally adore these poets, right? And, and I think they're doing really exciting stuff. But, yeah, like, you know, you've, you've used that phrase, sink without a trace. Unfortunately, the nature of Australian poetry is that, you know, or it seems to be that if your book doesn't win some massive... Well, the awards are really one of the only ways in which books can survive. And so... It's true that some books still do survive by virtue of, you know, positive attention and critical attention and so on, but the, those awards just have this disproportionate power, you know, that doesn't exist in the fiction world as much, for example. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just I sometimes despair, and I've been thinking a lot about the fact that, you know, if, if I just look at the last five years, some in, in, ter- in these sorts of terms and terrains that we've been talking about some of the most extraordinary books have been written in this country like michael farrell's cocky's joy martin harrison's happiness bonnie's uh, final theory meredith watterson's terror bravura like these are absolutely extraordinary books like amazing books and none of them won a prize like a couple of them were shortlisted for one or two um and yeah, that's it. And and like if if you know th- these are these should have been like real kind of watershed moments, um, mm-hmm. and maybe if like you were saying we had more space to celebrate those works, it wouldn't matter if they'd won prizes or not. Yeah, I um, think it is about space. For yeah. Sure. And yeah. the interesting thing is though that those books that you just mentioned, I feel like I I don't know. I feel like I want to argue that they were watersheds um, for 
big sections of people writing poetry in Great. Australia. Great. Well, I hope so. I hope yeah. so. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I guess that doesn't really help much if you're the poet who's written that book and it just kind of sold as much as it was expected to sell and, yeah. and it didn't go any further. And especially yeah. for poets, I think like um, Meredith and Michael, you know, for whom prizes would make massive differences to their lives like yeah. materially speaking yeah um yeah but i mean i i hope you're right like i wouldn't claim to to um be an expert on that but yeah i mean i i hope that's the case that, well yeah. yeah i mean i think it just depends if you've read them or not like if i think if you've read final theory mm. you kind of you can't not have read final theory sure. like it's before and after you can't <laughs> unfinalize it yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's like, and, and I feel the exact same way about this book. It really makes a huge impact on the way that you look at everything else. Right. And you go back to those books that are, you know, the sort of staid, traditional, mm. people want to give money to the books, and you go, mm. and? <laughs> right. So? Right. Oh, this is all very nice. Like, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like going back to the tea party after you've kind of peeked into the room in the back right right i don't know yeah much more interesting time Uh, no i mean it's totally it's it's it it makes a lot of sense and and like i can i I suppose yeah i mean it it, it, i mean it's it's great if that's the case And, and 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 on a larger scale like what you're saying is probably what goes on in the united states anyway like where you do have you know the books that win the pulitzers and so on generally you know they're not they're not books that critics and 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 people are going to write and think about for for many years afterwards mm. um they're books that kind of a large section of people might enjoy yeah. like might find yeah. very pleasant yeah um but yeah those kind of sort of conceptually groundbreaking sort of you know say final theory style books where you you can't go back after mm. after having read them yeah just tend to tend to sort of it's almost like they occupy a different sort of space or something yeah but there's just more people um, writing there's a much larger population and so yeah. they can be sustained by yeah. smaller pockets of people yeah. whereas here it's like we can probably count up exactly yeah um pretty yeah. quickly the number of yeah so it's just, exactly it's, yeah yeah just need more people yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I'm having so much fun talking to you. I I would love to get you to read whatever you want to read from the book. Okay, I'll just I'll, I'll read Fading Line. So, only by treading softly on steaming mulch, only like the heart caged in creamy bone, the heart strumming the border's periphery, the coiled limit of a rising tide, only is the days always irrepressibly moving. Towards the fence of rotting ironbark, Towards a brook's cooling history, the tracks deepening beneath persistence. A frail crevice between strands of light, I wait and I harden like a leaf drying out. A leaf the colour of burning apple, a leaf the colours of your burning iris. Only ever your iris in the bells of a brook, flaming bells in the brook's streaming series. Only by treading carefully, the heart caged in bone. Of love and its floods, of moods and their colours. I spume like a comet, like a coughing globe. I'm packed with rotten rock and petrified pupils. My sources streak towards their scarlet cots, while starved rapids harvest your fading line. Thank you. That's amazing. 
yeah again it's just that feeling that like you're you're hearing a voice from yeah way up in space way out in time huh. yeah cool that that was actually one of the very first poems i think i wrote oh really for the book yeah the i book, think yeah. so yeah yeah um like as part of this sort of period of time yeah that i was in yeah um yeah i'd been reading a lot of um Pablo Neruda like I was writing on Neruda for for my PhD and um like I mean I have I don't really love a lot of his work but his um Residence on Earth he has three Residence on Earth books they're kind of his um sort of uh I guess you'd call it early to middle period of his work and yeah the they had a huge impact on me like when I first started reading them it was kind of like when I spoke before about, you know, this kind of third way being through Latin American poetry, it was reading those poems um, that sort of made me feel that. Mm-hmm. Like, this was at once linguistically extremely exciting work, but also just emotionally just so powerful. Like, there was this guy's heart, like, in every word kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and it just, yeah, it just excited me so much. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, if you were to kind of look at, poems from probably even yeah the first book of residence on earth and then look at fading line you'd probably go oh, oh yeah like yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that that interested me too because like in spanish there's legions there are legions and legions of, of neruda imitators and and um i mean they imitate different sections of his work and different aspects of his work and stuff but that excited me too the idea that yeah, sure, you know, everyone in English imitates Ashbury or imitates Gary Snide or, you know, whatever it is. But, like, to actually bring some of those structures from, from like, from, say, the, you know, surrealist poems like from Residents on Earth into English, mm. like, that kind of excited me. And that's, like, in Fading Line, in Oil on Air, in Approach, those poems, that's exactly what I was doing. Mm. Like, I was just really excited with this kind of... Um, sort of surrealist overlay of image after image and the way you could kind of let the kind of emotional weight accumulate but you you didn't sort of have to control it by referring it back to yourself or back to what it meant to you you could Mm. just let the the material itself kind of speak it's very very exciting to me yeah that's it yeah that layering is totally what i feel when i read it it's never even in the most um your most lyric moments i don't feel like you're ever speaking i don't know if it's fair to say but like you're not um trying to make some kind of point you know right right yeah uh and yet points are being made all the time (laughs) you know there is there's this weight that kind of um builds up over time like you know i guess rock sediment would be the obvious right yeah analogy. great great yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so you, you did your phd on neruda no no oh it, no sorry um, you said it was about yeah, yeah like it's just that well it it became a it became a book like in a way opera is like in in a sort of weird way opera is like the third book in a trilogy mm. and um but it's like where the first book is uh, a monograph that I published a few years ago, which is based on my PhD called Speaking the Earth's Languages. And the second book was 
this translation of a of a um, New Guinea song cycle from the West Kimberley yeah. um, by George Dungayan, and so like, and each of those thing, and it, and then operas, you know, the third thing, and each of them in a way is a response to this kind of I guess you like this sort of imagination of of a relationship between Chile and Australia, more mm. or less, mm. but each obviously engages very differently. So the the book. The monograph that was my PhD. It's mainly a comparison of um, indigenous poetics in in both these countries, um, but it sets. I set it up by first having this kind of. I do this kind of comparison between Judith Wright and Pablo Neruda, and I essentially chop them to pieces by by like you know like in a way that I probably wouldn't do now I mean it was very sort of audacious and again sort of there was a sort of element of arrogance about it I guess it comes from being a young scholar you just sort of think oh yeah yeah, I can just do this but anyway my my general argument with both but both of those is that while they're often held up in each of their respective countries as being bastions of kind of progressive thought and decolonial thought and whatever Neruda more is associated just with leftist thought in general, whereas Judith is still today, you know, held up as this kind of bastion of kind of reconciliatory poetics and so on. There's actually, you know, major, major problems if you look at the poems more closely to do with some of these things we've already spoken about, to yeah. do with, yeah, the positions of the speakers, the assumption of, of, of knowledge about Aboriginal people or Indigenous people, so on and so on. So, but the first two chapters of this are basically me dismissing Judith Wright and Pablo Neruda before I move on to the Indigenous poetics. Right, okay. But I only, I mean, I, yeah, like I only look at certain aspects of their work and, yeah, but, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly, it's quite dismissive. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um, I hadn't thought about Judith Wright in that way either, actually. That, it never even occurred to me to... Right. Interrogate her work in that way. I mean, no, no one, no, very few people do, and and like, and and that's kind of, I guess, you know, people, have, like the the chapter in the book that receives the most criticism is my reading of Judith Wright, and they always people always say, oh, you know, it's not fair to judge this person. She, you know, she was at a different time and a different place, and blah 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 blah. But my point is always in response that. Yes, but she continues to be held up as this bastion of the the right thing to do, you know, like, and and people continue to cite her and use her in different ways. The Judith Wright Two Fires Festival at Braidwood, for example, you know, like she continues to have this symbolic power and yet we're not thinking about, we we know she had this thing about, about like, we know she had these political interests, but at the level of the, the poetry, what's going on is... I don't think that's a that's a model to follow, like like at all. Mm. Um, yeah, not to say that there are. I mean, there there are other aspects of her work which are amazing. Like I think, like her first three books for me are just um, those kinds of sort of pr- political problems aside. For the moment, just just at the on the level of form and craft and everything, they're mm. they're just am- amazing, astonishing books. Like and and I love so much of her work and her commitment to different things but I totally don't think that she's without problems and that we shouldn't kind of be aware of those yeah 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 yeah. Um, so who would you say so you're you're reading Judith Wright and you're reading Neruda and kind of doing this interrogative work Mm. um were there poets you were reading at that time that kind of led you towards the kind of writing that you did in opera 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I suppose there are kind of three key groups, like of, of poets. Um, like on the one hand, yeah, I was reading a lot of Latin American stuff. I I, I was living in Chile, um, and I mean, so many Chilean poets in particular are so important. To, to that book. I mean, Neruda, I spoke of Pablo de Roca, like a contemporary of Neruda's, and I have a poem written after him, the Frisbee at the Beach poem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's written very much in his voice. Yeah. Uh, Vicente Uidobro as well, like I, I reference him in the last poem in the book. Um, uh, Raul Zurita, um, contemporary Chilean poet, just his book Purgatory just changed everything for me. That's pretty much why I have photos in the book. Because yeah, well, um, yeah, I, st- uh, yeah, and I, cause it, I just, not that he has many photos in Purgatory, but just the visual aspects of that book really opened up everything for me and kind of um, led me to think much more and also informed poems like Lurajari, like with all the mm-hmm. sort of, you know, expansiveness of that. Yeah. Um, and then many other Latin American poets from around the place. Um, Coral Bracho is a contemporary American, a Mexican poet, but very sort of neo-Baroque um, and reminiscent of that early work of Neruda's, for example. Yeah, huge influence. Um, anyway, but lots of those. But then in Australia, I guess I was reading and thinking about most closely uh, Peter Minter, yeah, Michael Farrell, and, and Les Murray. It's sort of a, a weird mix, but... Um, and in probably Judith as well in different ways, but also like contemporaries and like friends, you know, people like Astrid LaRange. Um, I was in dialogue a lot with at that time, Kate Fagan, um, uh, people like that. And, and um, I suppose in the book, uh, yeah, I suppose the kind of mode of Lurajari would be closest to, I, I think in that moment I maybe felt closer to, like spaces that a writer like Pete Minter is in a lot. Mm. Um, and then the third sort of group was just, again, part of my PhD research. I was reading a lot of Aboriginal song poetry and, and a lot about the kind of musicologists and linguists who spent time with Aboriginal people translating this stuff. Mm. And and there's a kind of genre to that kind of translation. Like if you read Strello or The Burnts, there's a kind of genre to that to that that like there's a sort of form that their lines and the language occupies that became very I, I I loved it like you know this use of the progressive present tense you know they are coming now they are singing that you see that in um song of the possible for example like and, and I was just very interested in the relationship between the oral and the written like it was something that was that's going on all the way through that book but that I was thinking about a lot more broadly just uh, just about the kind of proximity of written language to speaking and the, the kind of the way in which you know if language is going to be this thing that exists within the world and and you know comes from the world or comes from country then how might you know the written world the written world or the written word you know kind of um embody some of those same oral characteristics and stuff like that mm-hmm. so like in earlier drafts in the earliest drafts of opera the present progressive was just kind of used overboard you know like I just had you know ing everywhere <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Um, and I really had to dial it back but um, it was just a sort of huge um, another kind of huge sort of thrust in writing the work I think mm, um, mm. that that sort of that that the the understanding that you know in, in the languages I was looking at anyway like Central Australian and West Kimberley Aboriginal languages in a lot of song poetry 
it's invariably in the present tense. There's invariably um, there, there's no there's very very rarely any kind of personal pronouns that are used. Usually, you might get you know uh, the third person, or you might get the third person if anything. Um, and um, there's a kind of a, a sense as well that everything's kind of in this ongoing state. It's not finalized. It's not clear. Objects aren't at rest. Um, uh, and and the, the poems themselves, you know, come from country. So again, that was part of what we talked about earlier. Like that yeah. is what was sort of informing me yeah. as I was writing it. Yeah. yeah. This. Wow. Yeah, I'm really glad you talked about all that. I was going to ask you about the writing of that poem too. So right. That's right. Really great. Right. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that I haven't asked that you that you want to talk about or? Um. Uh, I mean, I guess I guess I'd just say that, um, like, it's really important the, uh, to sort of. I mean, for me, it was really important that there weren't just. I mean, what what in a way made the work really come alive for me and really kind of made me sort of excited about it was that um, it was more than, or in addition, in addition to these kinds of thematic concerns and formal concerns and, you know, reading this poet and that poet and thinking about Gondwana and so on. There's also as well like this really important connection, you know, to my personal life at the time yeah. and particularly like the, the poems at the end, um, you know, that that like love poetry in a sense was kind of, in a, in a way love is like driving that entire book, even though for most of the book it's kind of couched under this other stuff, but what's kind of driving that real... Um, but like all of those other things, uh, in a way, was at heart like this this relationship that I that I had at the time, you know, with this this woman that I really loved, and and that and the ending of that relationship is is you know was this sort of kind of traumatic moment, of course, but it was also like this kind of that for me was what told me that the book was to end as well. So there's this really, you know, I'm talking about all these sort of theoretical things, but there is a really important sort of personal story yeah, oh, to absolutely. it as well that, yeah um, I, I yeah. think we've concentrated on the theoretical yeah yeah um, because that's sort of what I needed to unpack sure but yeah, that, yeah. The, I mean that's like my favourite poem in the book which is an overcast day on the other side of the world right yeah feels very much like not necessarily um, like a love poem to a person but a love poem about being stuck between countries right right um, yeah yeah which is my jam <laughs> that's good, so, that's good. Yeah. yeah um that personal side is definitely in there so yeah absolutely if like i wouldn't want anyone to listen to this and think wow that book sounds really heady because <laughs> <laughs> it's not at all uh, yeah. yeah i mean no i mean like I, I i totally i mean i would talk about those other things first as well but yeah. it's just yeah like it um i guess um yeah i suppose it's probably something i didn't even think about that much when I think back to this book it, but that kind of final section those songs of farewell at the end that's actually um, it's not just like a coda it's actually kind of the sort of the subterranean stuff underneath everything mm -hmm. um, but yeah um, it's uh, yeah it's it's another important part of the book and, and, and again you know why, why I was saying like that that experience with with Neruda's residence on earth for example was so impressive um, at the time was because yeah it was the sort of poetry I wanted to write that that had this real emotional intensity to it yeah um, yeah so yeah that's why yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, 
This is a terrible question to end on, but I'm <laughs> going to do it anyway. Uh, how are you going with your writing now? Um, pretty... Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. That's great answer. <laughs> I hate it when people ask me this. Yeah? Like, yeah, no, I'm... Ba- like, what I want to say is, like, I don't write much, I don't have time, I feel bad about it. Thanks for yeah. writing. <laughs> Thanks for writing. <laughs> I mean, like, actually... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel very privileged because I've, I've just done a residency in, in, in New York, which was amazing. amazing. And yeah, it was really great, and I, and I wrote a lot. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing a new book of poems um, where um, I'm, like, even way more dissented from the process than I was at any moment in opera, mm-hmm. and, you know, which is which is fine and it's all interesting and, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm liking the poems that are resulting, but it's also very kind of, oh, it's arduous and, and yeah. painstaking because, yeah, you're not sort of, you're not bound up in the work as, as some kind of, you know, you don't have that kind of confessional attachment to it or anything. Right, yeah. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm yeah, I, I, I shouldn't talk about, you know, new work in this way, but I'm just... I'm sort of I've, I'm almost at the end now, and I'm I'm just really looking forward to um, uh, writing some different work once it's once it's finished. Yeah, right. But um, it's I mean I, I I'm I'm really happy to have done it, um, and and uh, it, it's uh, unfortunately going to be it's going to be an absolute nightmare to typeset. Like the the poems are all I mean. It makes opera look very, very conventional. Right. Um, so, I feel even though I finished when I finish the revisions, that's only going to be like the first half of the, the process. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm I'm really looking forward to getting out of the way. And and apart from that, I'm I'm working on a you know a couple of essays, and um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just had to ask. No, sure. <laughs> Fair enough. That's very exciting to hear, and like great that you got to spend some time in New York as well. Yeah, yeah, it was upstate New York, but yeah, like it really, yeah, it's a really great, um, really great residency, like the the best, the best I've ever done. Just super great program, yeah, like really, really great, um, yeah, um, but yeah, no, so but yeah, if you'd have asked me like. Two months ago, how my writing's going? I would have said, yeah, I don't write a lot. I'm too busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have periods like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. No, thank, thank you, Alice. Yeah, I'm oh. glad you enjoyed it. I really, really did. Yeah, it was great to talk to you.